Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're hitching a ride on a Shantak and continuing to explore Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, Part 3. Before we get into all that sinister stuff, however, what is going on? Well, I know one thing that will be coming very shortly. Games. Lots of games. Yeah, a weekend with good friends is approaching fast. So, from the time this episode goes out, it'll be too late if you want to offer a scheduled game for the convention. GM signups have now closed, but there will be pickup games throughout the convention. So, if you have stuff that you do want to run, I can pretty well guarantee you'll be able to find players. And if you want to run pickup games, come onto the Discord server, and the convention staff there will show you exactly how to do so. Player signups will be starting, well, very soon from the time this episode goes out, so obviously it depends on when you're listening to it, but they begin on the 4th of February and close on the 10th of February. So I'll put a link on the show notes that will take you to the webpage for the convention, which will have a link to the convention booklet, which will show you what games are on offer, and it will also have a sign-up form there that you can used to, well, sign up. And of course, the convention itself takes place between the 18th and the 20th of February on our Discord server. And Matt, you received a parcel this week. Yeah, we had a wayward buyer key drop a parcel on my doorstep and then decided to fly away on me and leave this eldritch horror with me to unwrap and found a letter from one of our listeners, Neil Stanifer. He writes to us saying, Dear good friends of Jackson Elias, I've been enjoying your podcast for some time now, and while I'm a proud patron, I feel you put more into your productions than many other podcasts I support, and certainly any other gaming podcast, so I felt I should express my gratitude with something special. But what to do? Well, it turns out that my brother does acrylic poor art creations. That's P-O-U-R, not P-O-O. And he produced an experimental canvas that really spoke to me. In a moment of adult judgment, I purchased it from him to gift to the three of you. I trust you'll understand why when you see it. There's just something so... dot, 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 squamous and unnameable about it. The (laughs) word unheimlich suggests itself. Uh Uh-oh. I considered placing the work in a simple black frame, but I'm not sure that would fit the decor of its final destination. More to the point, and considering the associations this work evokes, I felt surely that you would place the painting in a drawer, lock that drawer, lose the key, and then burn the bureau and the house containing it. One can never be too careful after all. In the time you have left, I hope you enjoy the image and dreams it calls forth. One brief warning, do not place the painting anywhere warm. Perhaps it's just my paranoia rearing its ugly head once more, but I have certain misgivings about what may emerge. All the best, your faithful friend, Neil Stanifer, a.k.a. Tricycular Manslaughter. P.S. My brother was so delighted at the opportunity to remove this image from our home and our fair country that he included something extra. He wouldn't tell me what it was, but I distinctly heard the flapping of leathery wings as he was sealing the package. He's been doing a lot of giggling lately, so I can only assume the extra gift will be something humorous. Well, with that build-up, I am 
all a quiver to see what you are about to present to the camera, Matt. Because <laughs> yeah, me and Scott haven't seen this yet. Uh, it's yeah. a lovely piece, although I'm I'm kind of still debating. Which, oh no, I was going to say I'm debating which way's up. There is which way up it goes. There is a little hanger on the back, right. so I've uh, finally worked it out. But yeah, I will hopefully get far enough back to reveal this. Oh wow! Kind of tentacular inspired piece of artwork. Oh, that is pretty cool. That is amazing. Yeah. When you said poor art, my brain had somehow passed it as P-O-R-E. And looking at this, I'm not entirely convinced that I'm wrong, because those <laughs> tentacles do look like they're covered with paws. Lots of suckers. Yeah. Yeah, that is nice. Yeah, I was imagining the kind of pouring art that I've seen on Facebook, on some uh, things that I follow on there, where people like pour acrylic paint and then swirl it around and stuff mm. it may be that that's the case with this but the the way they've kind of got the tentacles and the, and the suckers and stuff is that looks really cool mm. yeah, yeah. It's, it's got a whole range of vivid colors in there as well so and even holding it up to the light at an angle so you can kind of bounce light off it you can see the texture on there as well and it's yeah it's very well done well if you could take a photograph of that matt then i will cheerfully put that up on the website yeah definitely i'll find somewhere to get a photo there and then on a similar kind of note, uh, on a smaller scale, admittedly, there's also this lovely coaster. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. Oh, yes. A winged Cthulhu stamp on a... Is that acrylic as well? The Yeah, it looks like an acrylic pour on the background, but... I think it is. It's not got quite the same thickness of texture, but if, if you run your fingers across it, you can definitely feel the edges of the or the pools of colour in there. There's a nice subtle kind of glittery effect in there as well. It probably doesn't come out too well on the camera. Mm. But yeah, it's a nice nice little coaster. Oh, very neat. Well, thank you very much to both Neil and his brother for that. Those are phenomenal. Yeah, thank you very much, Neil. Indeed, thank you very much. And now on to our main topic, the dream quest of unknown Kadath. Part three. When we left Randolph Carter, he was once again in a dangerous situation. He'd been travelling with his friends, the ghouls, and had passed through the vaults of Zin and gone to this tower that was going to lead up to the upper dreamland. But before he and his pals had had a chance to make their way up there, something nasty, something big and nasty, something, well, guggish, had taken an interest in them and looked like it was about to devour them. Then again, some ghasts turned up as well. So, well, let's see where this goes. As the gug and ghasts do battle, Carter and his ghoulish companions take the opportunity to escape. Eventually, they come to a tower marked with the sign of Koth, leading upwards towards the enchanted wood. The steps inside the tower leading to Upper Dreamland are monstrous, designed for the massive gugs. The ghouls have to carry Carter up through the darkness, listening for any sign of predatory gugs or ghasts. We do have all three Gs here. We do have gugs, ghasts <laughs> and ghouls, oh my, all in one scene. Yeah. And I do like these big steps that Carter has to be helped up. Mm. Lovecraft does like his Cyclopean architecture, and we see this in a number of his stories, but this is 
I think one of the best examples of just something that is not built on a human scale and is not really human friendly. No, I mean, each one of these steps, given that a gug is like 20 foot tall, if it was built for gugs, each one of these steps is going to be like climbing onto your table, your desk in front of you, isn't it? Possibly even more, yeah. Maybe a bit more, yeah. So each one is going to be doable but hard work you know when you've got to do mm. a bunch of those it's going to be like doing some kind of fitness regime yeah you're certainly not going to be doing it in a hurry no whereas a gug i guess can just run up them yeah quietly <laughs> considering how slow this is it's appropriate that lovecraft talks about carter having to partake of eons of climbing that does sound like the weary complaint of someone who doesn't get enough exercise. I was going to say, this sounds like me going up the stairs every bloody day. So. <laughs> yeah, but you're getting over COVID, so you have an excuse. Yeah, but it was like that before COVID as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was giving you an out there, Matt. I was giving you an out. <laughs> but yes, the party hear a cough from the darkness above, and it's not Matt. One of the ghouls raises the tombstone that he's been carrying, ready to use it as a weapon, because that is what ghouls should be using as weapons, carrying tombstones around. And they see the yellowish-red eyes of a ghast flash into view, and the ghoul leaps forward and beats it to death with the gravestone. I mean, how fucking cool is that? Yeah, I mean, a gravestone, unless it's like a really small one, is going to be pretty damned heavy. So ghouls mm. must be strong. That is going to be one cumbersome weapon. But also I like the fact that it's got this utility that you can like prop doors open with it. You could mm. you could do all sorts of things with a big slab of stone. Yeah, you should never go anywhere without one. Yeah. If you take a walk through your nearby cemetery anytime and see any tombstones or headstones that have these rather oddly almost handhold shaped indents in them, you know who's a ghoul sympathizer getting ready to provide them with their next set of weaponry. <laughs> There's a couple of things I wanted to comment on here. One is just the fantastic phrase by which he uses to describe some of the ghouls. He says, they judged the edge of the top of the staircase to be the right one. And to this, they bent all the force of their disreputably nourished muscles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a fantastic phrase. That really is. But there is another thing about the gugs that I wanted to mention that they were banished by earth's gods so we get an impression mm. here at some point we're told the gugs gigantic and hairy once reared stone circles in a wood and made strange sacrifices to the other gods and the crawling chaos nihilathotep until one night an abomination of theirs reached the ears of earth gods and they were banished to the caverns below so we get this thing of earth's gods kind of policing the dreamlands the earth's dreamlands and putting some sort of sanction on the Gugs and sending them down to the, you know, this underworld place as a punishment. So it's interesting that we see actually some evidence of Earth's gods actually exercising their authority here. Yeah, because until now they haven't been bigged up at all. They've been no. described as being really quite weak and feckless. Sounds like the fun police to me. But maybe, maybe they were once stronger and Nialathotep mm. has got them under his thumb now or something like that. But they certainly don't seem to be quite the force that they once were. Mm. But we'll see more of that later. So as mentioned, the tombstone proves useful once more as the party reach the stone door in the forest floor. The ghouls use the gravestone to prop it open while Carter scurries through to the enchanted wood. 
His ghoulish companions planned to leave the way they came, preferring to travel underground, but follow Carter when they hear a gug closing in on them. They've got a sense of self-preservation. <laughs> Carter suggests that they can return to the Abyss via Sar Command and gives them directions, parting company with them. And Carter shook the paws of these repulsive beasts, thanking them for their help and sending his gratitude to the beast that once was Pikmin. But he could not help sighing with pleasure when they had left, for a ghoul is a ghoul, and at best an unpleasant companion for man. I love that. We've had this party travelling together, they've helped each other out of pickles, Carter has relied on them heavily, but still fundamentally, they're ghouls. <laughs> this is something I always strive for whenever I use ghouls in a neutral or even beneficial capacity in a scenario, which is just reminding people, yeah, okay, yes, they, they might be helping you at this stage, but they're monsters, and they're monsters who eat people, and they're really disgusting, and are they really your friends? Yeah, it's like I think uh, in one particular instance that you use them, it was uh, looking at a PC, licking their lips and going, your eyes look juicy and delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are we not straying into the land of all orcs being bad there, though? I don't think we are, because we've just seen them at their best, and we've seen Pikmin helping out, and these ghouls, they've all been really quite friendly. But it doesn't get around the fact that they do eat rotting flesh, they kill people, they eat people. Even the ones that don't necessarily go into the underground in Boston, as we saw in Pikmin's model, and capture people who are waiting for trains or break into their cellars and do horrible things there. Even if we assume that not every ghoul does that and they still do hang around graveyards dig up granny and have her for lunch and not in a hospitable way <laughs> well the fact they eat people doesn't necessarily make them bad no it doesn't but it does make them perhaps repellent yeah i mean i'm not disagreeing i'm just you know just throwing it out there no don't get me wrong i like ghouls but I wouldn't necessarily want to have dinner with them. Carter, in turn, sets off for Salafaeus. As he passes through the enchanted forest, however, he overhears the Council of Zoogs meeting in a hollow tree, planning military action against the cats. Now it's the Zoog army. <laughs> you know, they're all at it. The Council of Zoogs does sound like the shittest superhero team ever. <laughs> I know, I've got to add flashes back to... Um... Oh, was it that speech in The Untouchables? Thinking this has all been set off by the couple of Zoogs going missing in Ulthar. It's like, yeah, they take one of our guys down, we put three of theirs in the morgue. And you just have this kind of mafioso gang of Zoogs getting ready to take revenge. <laughs> Sneaking off to the edge of the woods, Carter gives a cry in the language of the cats, which is passed from cat to cat all the way to Ulthar. The moon is not in the sky, so all the cats are on Earth to hear this. That's a weird image. That's almost like, hey, the, the fires have been lit and you see him go up across the land from mountain to mountain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> just... <laughs> and shortly afterwards, the feline army, which we've seen before, arrives again, led once more by the general who rescued Carter on the moon. His nephew, the Black Kitten, is now a lieutenant in the army. The troops lay siege to the Zoogs, who quickly surrender, 
Because you would, because it's an army of fucking cats. They're scary. Carter acts as an interpreter during the subsequent negotiations, helping broker a truce where the Zoogs offer regular tributes of grouse, quail and pheasants from the forest. Poor birds, why do they always get the brunt of things? Mm. Because they're delicious. (laughs) Carter accompanies the cats as they depart. The general says that he has heard much of Kadath, but does not know its location. He does, however, give Carter some passwords of great value among the cats of Dreamland and commends him to the old chief of the cats in Celepheus. So he's not only can he speak cat language, but he's now got cat passwords. I'd love to think that a cat password is something like the sound of a tin being opened. <laughs> or just... Pss, 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 pss. Or just occasionally... Salmon! Or like meow, one, two, three, four. <laughs> Continuing his journey, Carter follows the singing river Okranos. This takes him past temples, cottages, and shrines of amiable gods carved from jasper or chrysoberyl. There's a, a mineral you don't hear of much these days. Yeah, I'm not sure it's one I've ever said out loud. I'm glad you took that one. <laughs> I take Andrew Lehman as the authority on pronunciation of all <laughs> things, just because he's such a good uh, voice actor. But yeah, he's, I think he said chrysoberyl. Uh, and it is, is a weird-sounding word to me, mm. to my ear. Mostly, he passes woodland. In former dreams, he had seen quaint, lumbering bupoths. Oh, they're cute. Make good steak as well. Come shyly Oh, so we can eat them? <laughs> 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 Only if they get killed by an army detachment who don't know better. But yes, yeah, some quaint, lumbering bupoths come shyly out of that wood to drink but now he could not glimpse any. Again, they've all gone to uh, North Borneo. (laughs) Spoilers, Matt. Spoilers. (laughs) As the sun sets, Carter spies the thousand gilded spires of Thran. The city is surrounded by alabaster walls, wrought in one solid piece by what means no man knows. Arriving at the city gate, Carter is stopped by a red-robed sentry till he tells three dreams beyond belief, proving himself a dreamer worthy to walk up. This also has a bit Monty Python and the Holy Grail, doesn't it? Yeah. It also reminds me of one of Lovecraft's inspirations here. Can't remember the exact story name now, but I remember there is definitely one of the stories in Lord Dunzany's collection, A Dreamer's Tales, where the price for entering the city is that the dreamer or any visitor has to tell a story, and that's then related to the city's monarch. So, yeah, that sounds very, very similar to that. Hmm. But there's a lot implied by this little bit here, which is, I mean, for a start... Obviously, Carter is immediately identifiable as a dreamer. I guess the people in the city who come and go don't have to do this each time. The Red Road Sentry can probably identify the locals, but there's obviously something about Carter that makes him stand out. I mean, maybe this is because when he dreams, he visualizes himself in the clothing of Earth and he's wandering around in a tweed suit while everyone else is dressed in red robes or whatever. It's the loafers that give him away. (laughs) But it's the fact that this guard then at the city explicitly challenges him. So, I mean, we see later on that dreamers have potentially got a lot of power in the dreamlands and can actually reshape them. But, 
I'm kind of fascinated by these little hints of the relationship between dreamers, these people from outside and the dreamlands they're coming to visit, and what this says about the people who are native to the dreamlands are, and maybe even what the people who are native to the dreamlands are. There's a lot of implied background, or at least background that isn't spelt out, that from a gaming point of view is, I think, both fascinating and really difficult to work with. Yeah, in a game, don't ask the players to tell you three dreams beyond belief. That'd just be, that's inviting tedium right there, I'm sure. I mean, maybe some people could do a great job of it, but I think they're in the minority. I remember playing a Changeling game one time where I was put on the spot to say, tell me a story, and it was like rabbit in headlights moment going, I haven't prepped for this. I've got no bloody idea what the hell to say. Yeah, it's quite hard. Carter makes his way through the city to a tavern whose customers include captains he remembers from previous dreams. He books passage to Salafaeus on a great green galleon the following day and spends the evening talking to the venerable cat of that inn, who blinked dozing before an enormous hearth and dreamed of old wars and forgotten gods. Again with knowing everyone. Again. Yeah. That's just such a useful skill, just being able to know everyone you encounter, or almost everyone. I don't know if this is a testament to Carter's character, but everyone he's encountered before actually seems to like him. He doesn't really seem to have pissed anyone off, which considering, mm. you know, as you've said before about the death and destruction that follows in, in his way, yeah. is surprising. You can just imagine all these denizens of the dreamlands in the cities just looking at this tweed clad figure coming towards them thinking oh fuck it's carter yeah oh shit's gonna go down now i mean it's three ghoul buddies that he just left to go to sarkamand spoilers but they're gonna get a bit pissed off with him <laughs> certainly wish they never met the guy you could all see it now in the more rural parts of the dreamlands there are tales of this tweed clad walking nightmare that when he comes to town just everything is desolate afterwards <laughs> he walks up to town and suddenly finds everywhere he goes is a ghost town where everyone's just run away from him to get out of his uh, path of destruction on board the ship carter asks the crew about the strange men in cellophaeus with the features of gods of these men the sailors knew not much save that they talked but seldom and spread a kind of awe about them the sailors do know that the men come from a land called Inganok, shunned because of its proximity to Leng, an evil plateau with horrible stone villages and an unmentionable monastery. Which they mention. <laughs> yeah, the irony. <laughs> <laughs> so, Leng. <laughs> Leng, where's Leng? All over. We've had hints in other Lovecraft stories that Leng is perhaps in Tibet, or maybe it's the city of the elder things in the Antarctic. Now it's in the dreamlands. Is Leng like a franchise? It's like it's locationally challenged or more likely locationally confused. It wakes up one day and then just says, oh, I'm in the dreamlands today. Oh, I'm in Tibet tomorrow. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a bit like a state of mind, a bit like Carcosa or something like yeah. that. It's, uh, it's just this place that, you know, there's debate about where it is. Could be various places. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly I remember using it in the uh, Spirit of the Century game that I ran for you, Matt, ages ago, mm. and treating a thing as an infection that, uh, I guess, a bit like Carcosa, but it's just every now and then a place would get infected with Leng and bits of it would just start appearing there. I think you can take tablets for it now, though. Mm. Stone tablets. Mm-hmm. The travelogue continues past the perfumed jungles of Cled, where spells of the Elder Ones protect wandrous palaces of ivory long abandoned. So, yeah, I mean, these Elder Ones, well, it's Lovecraft, everything's an Elder One. Mm -hmm. The boat then docks overnight at the vast trading city of Halanith, whose people are more like those of the waking world than any others in dreamland, so that the city is not sought except for barter, but is prized for the solid work of its artisans. So, again, we've got this sort of weird reaction to, in this case, people who just happen to look like dreamers, they're treated differently by the people in the dreamlands. That's weird, isn't it? Hmm. And a kind of a juxtaposition that dreamers are held normally in, in lots of the other references as being these kind of heroes of the dreamlands, these kind of demigods because of the power they have to rewrite reality with their dreaming skill. And then you've got somewhere that, would, that they look like dreamers, and yet he's kind of almost making it out that they're mundane and dull in comparison to the rest. Well, not even mundane, but shunned. Hmm. After two days of sailing across the Serenarian Sea, the ship approaches the glittering minarets and the untarnished marble walls of Celepheus. Behind them lies the purple ridge of the Tanarians, potent and mystical, behind which lay forbidden ways into the waking world and toward other regions of dream. So presumably, like, other dreamlands. I mean, or maybe, like, the upper and lower dreamlands. Yeah, there's other regions... Or maybe that there are yet other dreamlands. So, I mean, we've seen that dreamers, or we'll, we'll see certainly an example soon of how dreamers can create or shape dreamlands. So maybe this is some kind of nexus point where it goes off to other dreamlands that have been created by dreamers of Earth. Uh, it mm. doesn't necessarily have to be the ones from other planets or you know, alien civilizations. And it's little things like this that sort of, I think, give you permission to go absolutely hog wild with the Dreamlands and put any weird shit you want in there because you just go on one of these forbidden paths and you know, end up somewhere really weird. Well, in the Dreamland source book, the, the map of the Dreamlands just deliberately goes to point out a portion of Earth's Dreamlands and pretty yeah. much anything to the east of Celepheus is pretty open and there's not really much on the map at all. So it's very much here be whatever the hell the GM wants. I've wondered about that map of the Dreamlands and what it means within the game itself because it does seem like most people within Dreamland or you know the Dreamland we see here know little bits and perhaps know where some places are in, in respect of others. But it doesn't really seem like a world in which there's anyone who who knows everything that's on that map. Yeah, it's almost going back in time where you might have kind of like the Dark Ages setting where people know their immediate village or their immediate surroundings, maybe a couple of villages across, but then after that it's kind of here be dragons on the map. It's just because travel yeah. didn't really happen. So yeah, similar thing. It's they only know the confines of where they've been. 
Some of the boats in the harbour hail from the marbled cloud city of Seranian that lies in ethereal space beyond where the sea meets the sky. Selefeus itself is a deathless city of vision, for here time has no power to tarnish or destroy. I do love all these little bits of description like that. Mm. Carter wanders the city, looking for mariners from Inganok, but only meets one Thorobonian sailor who had been to Inganok and had worked in the onyx quarries of that twilight place. This sailor speculates that the shunned desert north of Inganok leads to Leng, and maybe on to Kadath. This seems like Lovecraft is making up for lost time thinking. I've described this weird and wonderful landscape, and I've had easily pronounceable names up until this point. Just throw a whole lot of random <laughs> names out that are bloody impossible to pronounce and get them all into this one little bit. The next day, Carter talks to the priest in the turquoise temple, who warns Carter that the gods are testy and capricious, and subjected strange protection from the mindless other gods from outside. He believes these gods wish to prevent Carter from finding this city. Yeah, strange protection from the mindless other gods from outside. They're mindless, but they still are able to provide protection. Mm. Mindless and still have plans. Mm. Mm. Carter has better luck with the old chief of Selefeus's cats, who tells him that the ships of Inganok hold shadows which no cat can endure, possibly because of things wafted over the impassable peaks from hypothetical Leng, and that far land there broods a hint of outer space which cats do not like. I like hypothetical Leng. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of a theory. It kind of maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's like Schrodinger's Leng. Well, that explains why it's in so many places, yeah. And I like this idea that the shadows hold... It's not that there are things in the shadows, it's the shadows themselves Yeah, that I took it to be. It's like the, the shadows have this, this darkness, perhaps of distant space, or almost like they're a gateway to some other dimension, or it's just the quality of that darkness that cats can't actually stand. But I do like the idea that cats can jump up to the moon through space, but mm. it's space beyond there. Nah, I don't like that. That seems like the kind of semi-contradiction that is, at its heart, very feline. Well, jumping up to the moon, you're not going into darkness, you're going into the, the moon, right? Yeah, but you're travelling through a lot of dark space to get there, but probably not in dreamland. Well, it's illuminated by moonlight. Depends which side you land on. I, whether that means that the space in between is that bright, I, I think it's pretty dark, but you're heading towards a bright spot. But anyway. Yeah. Well, if I head towards the light bulb, it illuminates me. Whereas if I go into a shadow behind the cupboard, it's dark. The amount of light coming off the moon compared to the vastness of space, even between the Earth and the moon, when you're travelling through it, it's going to look pretty dark. It's not going to be like going into a bright room. It's going to be like seeing a very distant 20-watt you know, bulb and heading towards that through a lot of very dark space. But I feel we're getting off topic. <laughs> Indeed. The old chief of the cats also tells Carter where to find his old friend King Karanus, who had been a dreamer in life, but now lives on past death in dreamland. The king has turned away from the wonders of Selefeus and now lives in a grey gothic manor house of stone, looking on the sea. 
And again, there's a lot of implied metaphysics here with Dreamland. You have this man who was a dreamer, was able to project his consciousness into Dreamland as he slept and have adventures there, as Carter is doing now. But when he died, actually managed to survive beyond death as a spirit or whatever in Dreamland. We talked a couple of episodes before about the difficulty sometimes of squaring the more metaphysical aspects of the dreamland with the very materialistic presentation of the Cthulhu mythos in Lovecraft's other fiction. But I think this is the biggest disconnect for me, at least, the fact that we have life after death. This isn't even like theoretical or hoping for an afterlife or whatever. This is absolute concrete proof that people can survive death. Well, they can transform themselves at the moment of death. That's the, the way I've always looked at it. I mean, to stretch a point, you've got the idea that Carter is his sleeping form. I presume he's just having a night's sleep in his real earthly body, right? I guess so. And yet it's lasting for months here. So potentially, perhaps, King Quran is, at the moment of death, is dreaming. And it's just that moment that he's stretching out in the dreamlands for a very long time. And he can't go back because he's about to die. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Be one way of looking at it. But uh, but otherwise, yeah, it does seem like his earthly body has died. And because of the power of his that he had as a dreamer, because of his dreamer skill, he was able to, whatever that is, was able to continue. I remember that being probably my favourite ending to any of the big campaigns that I've played sitting down in the snow with a smile on my face, waiting for that one last dreaming roll to see if I uh, re-manifest in the dreamlands after I freeze. <laughs> yeah. You and Jack Torrance. <laughs> <laughs> in his afterlife, King Karanis longs for the English countryside of his boyhood and has built a little Cornish fishing village with steeped cobbled ways, settling therein such people as had the most English faces and seeking ever to teach them the dear remembered accents of old Cornwall fishers. He had also shaped other parts of the neighbouring dreamland into facsimiles of different parts of England. And this all was just before he voted for Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that's what this is about, isn't it? Um, Wow, there's so much to unpack there. There really is. The most English faces, whatever they are. I know, but I'm just picturing King Karanis wandering around this village going, no, go, yar, yar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? Uh, so, yeah, I don't know where to go with this. But it is very much about Karanis wanting to capture his childhood, isn't it? Wanting to capture that... Uh, nostalgic, mythologized in his own head yeah. childhood that he had in England and how he wants to recapture that. And his power of his dreaming is so great that he's able to recreate it around him. Yeah, to reshape the existing landscape and turn it into something else. And this means that the British Empire at this stage transcends death. <laughs> You can't fucking escape it, can you? The sun you? never um, sets on it. <laughs> Even in dreamland. <laughs> but can you imagine this from the point of view of 
an inhabitant of dreamland. Maybe that's why they've been a bit weird towards people who remind them of dreamers, because you have this one guy who's turned up here and said, you're all English now. <laughs> yes. But it got me wondering, we've seen that there are these weak spots and the, the barrier between dream and, and the waking world is permeable. I'm just wondering about this happening the other way around. What happened if you had you know, a powerful sorcerer or just really creative people from dreamland come through to the waking world and return the favor you know, and turn up in some midwestern town and just start turning it into Ulthar or something like that i keep flashing back admittedly it's a different context but keep flashing back to um that bloody off license keeps turning up in the woods in the ritual <laughs> it's very much re rewrite the forest off license and then back again. <laughs> Also, I've not been to Barcelona, but I understand that, you know, it might have had that effect there already. <laughs> I have been to Barcelona a number of times, and yeah, I think the influence of the dreamland is about the only way you can explain Gaudi. <laughs> yeah. He was a powerful dreamer. <laughs> but I keep coming back to this, but I, I just can't necessarily make sense of it in a way that keeps me happy. But... The people who live in the dreamlands natively, what are they? Who are they? I mean, obviously, the dreamlands are shaped by dreamers and maybe the creation of them. So does that, that mean that the people who live there are just like the products of their imagination? Are they like the, the spawn of dreamers who've gone there and died and reproduced? Are they something else? Are they... I mean, what are they? I mean, I feel like this is another land, another place that even if there were no earthly human beings, that place would exist. But through dreaming, we can go there. And because of something in our nature, it allows us to go there through dreams. And something in our nature, the, if we have enough power as a dreamer, we can actually mutate that land. We can exercise that as a some kind of almost like magic, I suppose, you know, the, mm. the dreaming is magic, you know, the skill of dreaming is magic in that land and you can exercise it. You can use your magic to make you better at skills in that land. You can use your magic to, to change the look of things. It's not that different to stereotypical magicians in the real, you know, in the real world in say like Merlin in Arthurian legend, then, you know, it's, it's that, that kind of magician here is exercising fantastical abilities comparable to those which we see randolph carter exercising in the dreamland i would say i wonder whether that suggests that perhaps what we consider to be the waking world is another layer of dreamland and that you have characters like merlin who've come through from yet another world and are just doing to us what king Karanis is doing in in the dreamland we see here that would answer your question as to who those people are in the dreamland that were native to the dreamland well they're like us that are native to earth mm. these dreamers that come through that, that are kind of alienated that's perhaps how we would feel about people was jesus a dreamer from another dimension you know because mm. he did you know apparently he didn't come off too well either <laughs> i can hear the inception soundtrack playing right now <laughs> it's all, all dreams within dreams. Yeah. But I'm also imagining locals in this dreamland just having these 
almost existential crises like this where they're encountering these dreamers who are telling them that their world is just a dream and that they can reshape it and they travel between worlds and so on. And just this farmer somewhere who encounters Randolph Carter or King Karanis or whoever and learns all this stuff, just falling apart completely is just unable to determine whether he's real or whether the world around him is real. And yeah, I can imagine, no pun intended, it being an absolute nightmare. And this is why they created the statue of Spock's head on the mountain, because in Star Trek Four, he looks at Kirk and says, life is not a dream, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes together. Yeah. I'm just thinking, isn't it in um, Undiscovered Country that they uh, keep singing, row, row, row your boat? Oh, it is. Dream. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I've, life is but a dream. Yeah. I've let myself down. <laughs> Carter travels to meet King Karanas finding him pensive in a chair by the window, looking on his little seacoast village, lost in reverie about the past. The two make conversation, and we learn that Karanas was the dreamer who had been out beyond the stars in the ultimate void and was said to be the only one who had ever returned sane from such a voyage. I really want to read Karanis's story rather than mm. Carter's. It sounds far more interesting. <laughs> Karanis had learned much of the other gods in distant parts of space, especially that region where form does not exist and coloured gases study the innermost secrets. I love that. Is that referenced again in... Was it The Shadow Out of Time? Because we have references to all these alien worlds. Yeah, I'm sure there's a mention of sentient gases in that as well. Yeah, I think so. Karanis warns that it is not well to meddle with the Elder Ones, and that Carter had best abandon his quest. Yeah, but I couldn't help feeling that, you know, the talking coloured gases, like, I don't know, the silliness dial is increasing here again. I need to <laughs> push it back. But anyway, more importantly, Karanis does not believe that finding the city would make Carter happy. Karanis himself had longed for the wonders of Salafaeus. Now that it is his permanent home, all his kingdom would he give for the sound of Cornish church bells over the downs. Perhaps it is better to remain a glorious and half-remembered dream. So he's done all this stuff, but still hasn't bought him happiness. Yeah, and I think... Though Lovecraft doesn't spell it out here, I think it's just the human condition that we are incapable of being happy. This is getting into Buddhist territory, that as long as we desire something, that desire brings suffering. And I, th I think you could make quite a deep Buddhist reading of the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. I took it more that it was that sort of an anti-nostalgia thing, really. I think Lovecraft was quite nostalgic for his childhood in many ways. And here he's being quite perceptive in sort of saying that, yeah, I know even if I got all that back, it wouldn't really make me happy. Um, and perhaps I'm better off now, you know, as I am. That's how I read it. Despite these warnings, Carter holds to his purpose and makes his way back to Celepheus to await the dark ship from cold and twilight Inganok. When the boat arrives, Carter is cautious, observing the sailors as they gather in groups in remote corners and sing amongst themselves the haunting airs of unknown places. Eventually, he makes contact, pretending to be an old onyx miner and wishful to work in their quarries. 
I suppose it's uh, less hazard pay than lava gathering, but even so, <laughs> <laughs> still make some money out of it. I don't know. Wait till you see the the, the quarry that they have to work in. Yeah. At least, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'll take my chances with the lava. Carter takes passage on their ship of teakwood with ebony fittings and traceries of gold. And everything in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is made of something that's rare in the waking world. Everything is, it is Lovecraft, I think, just dialing the the aesthetic dial up to 11 mm. and just letting it sit there all the way through. This is very much his fantasy. I don't know. I've got Onyx only about three feet away from me. <laughs> Yeah, but not an entire city of it, man. Not an entire city. Two bookmarks versus a whole, uh, two bookends rather versus a whole city is, uh, yeah, a little bit, little bit of a yeah. disparity there. Yeah. Slight difference of scale. Carter talks to the sailors, learning of their exquisite onyx city, and their fear of the high and impassable peaks beyond which Leng was said to be. They are also very sorry that cats shun Inganok. Back to the names again. We got Inganok and Ingranek, which mm. they're substantially different, but they're quite similar as well. Yeah. Again, I wonder whether this is the kind of thing that Lovecraft might have changed in a subsequent draft, as we've pointed out in the first episode. This is a first draft. Mm. I can just imagine it's the kind of thing that if he was reading back over it at some stage and perhaps reading passages out, he'd hit himself in the forehead and said, nah, got to change that. I don't know if that's the sort of thing he'd have bothered about, but yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe he missed the forehead, given the uh, description of the cast. <laughs> As the men tell Carter of an unused quarry greater than all the rest in the cold desert whose existence the men of Inganok did not care to admit, he wonders if the onyx mined from there might have been used to build Kadath. I mean, that is a fairly big deductive leap, but I, well, why not? He rolled an 01 on his idea roll. That's, that's what <laughs> happened. That's it. Or geology. <laughs> Over the weeks of the journey, the sun wheels lower and lower in the sky, and the mists grow thicker. Eventually, the sailors sight great grey peaks whose tops were lost in the changeless clouds of that twilight world. And they burst into song and prayer. It's a musical number. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Suddenly, all this atmosphere, all this evoking of uh, terror and horror. Insert musical number. Yeah, I just wonder when they were sea shanties. That should be a <laughs> that should change the tone of this greatly. Yo ho ho! It's an onyx mine. Is life for me? Mm. <laughs> The Onyx City is filled with bulbous domes and fantastic spires and terraced pyramids, whereon rows clustered minarets displaying every phase of strangeness and imagination, which is a lot of phases, a lot. Lots of strangeness, lots of imagination, all the phases. Amidst all this lies the Temple of the Elder Ones, a sixteen-angled tower greater than all the rest, ruled by an old high priest, sad with inner secrets. I love that phrase, sad with inner secrets. But aren't we all sad with inner secrets? Oh, yes, it is the human condition. The captain takes Carter to a tavern. Hurrah! <laughs> <laughs> That's good, right? Where the yeah. songs of remote places are only interrupted when the great bell in the tower chimes 
and everyone bows silently until the last echo fades away. Bong. <laughs> I wonder how often that bell rings. I'd like to think it rings every five minutes or so, and they're oh. just getting you to a song, and it's, oh, fuck, it's the bell again. It's not even last orders, is it? It's just uh, <laughs> dinner time. Oh, dear. In the shadows of the tavern, Carter spies the squat merchant he had seen in Diathlene, who was reputed to trade with the horrible stone villages of Leng. The sailors tell Carter the merchant has come with a yak caravan. Oh, those poor yaks, you know it's just going to end well. It's another <laughs> animal, isn't it? Bearing the colossal and rich-flavoured eggs from the rumoured Shantak bird. Mm. Yeah, now everyone seems absolutely terrified of the Shantak birds. They're described as being disgusting and people don't even necessarily believe they exist. They're really sinister. But people love their eggs. Tasty. <laughs> I like the sound of them. Colossal, rich-flavoured eggs. Yeah, you can just taste the blasphemy. Yeah. I've seen videos on people on how to cook ostrich eggs. So oh. thinking if they're bigger than that, then boy, those yeah. things are going to take a hell of a lot of effort to cook. Considering how big the Shantaks are, they're described as being elephant-sized, I imagine... <laughs> One of those eggs would probably feed uh, an entire family for some time. Elephant <laughs> eggs. <laughs> Does sound like a euphemism for something, doesn't it? They have a little trunk on the outside. The following day, Carter visits the gardens of the Temple of the Older Ones, but does not enter the tower because only the Veiled King is permitted to do that. He moves on to the King's Palace, passing through several paragraphs of exquisite architecture, then turns around again because no one is permitted there either. This may be all for the best, as the central dome is said to house the archaic father of all the rumoured Shantak birds, and to send out queer dreams to the curious. This sounds like another exercising snipping out of the uh, first draft. It is like a few pages of, of Carter just wandering around the city. I mean, obviously, this mm. is uh, Lovecraft indulging his architecture fetish, but nothing really happens in these pages. If you did this in a game, the players would revolt. You, you walk through the city. Let me spend half an hour describing every bit of lovely architecture you see. Okay, you get to the tower, but you can't go in there because you're not the Veil King. Okay, well, we'll, we'll all right, we'll go off back to, to the King's Palace then. There's got to be something interesting there. Okay, let me describe all the architecture for you and all the gardens and everything you see. All right, you get there. No, you're not, not allowed in there either. The GM is doing a lot of talking here. Yeah. Eventually getting to core. Look at the gamble roof on that one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean it, we see this all through the story there's a lot of description often with nothing really happening it's good to a point it's enjoyable to a point but i do find sometimes that i kind of lose my focus on it i start thinking yeah. about something else it's hard to to maintain the concentration yesterday i went for a walk uh long walk and yeah, as I said, I had the, the audio book or the reading by Andrew Lehman in my ears and just walking over a field and listening to, I think, this description. That was quite nice, actually, because it mm. just let it wash over me. That was uh, quite pleasant. Oh, it's, it's beautifully written. And yeah, I do love a lot of the little bits of description in there. But from a story point of view, that I think is quite a frustrating section because it is just 
Carter pinballing around, and it's sort of, oh, something interesting is going to happen. No, it's not about to happen. Okay, well, he's going somewhere else. Uh, yeah, and, and clearly something interesting is going to happen. No, no. There's, and um, yeah, it's like I say, I mean, if it were within a game, you'd probably punch the GM. But also, here again, we have the idea of there being dreams within dreams. This uh, central dome which is said to house the archaic father of all the rumoured Shantak, the birds, sends out queer dreams to the curious. I don't know whether that means it's the dome or something else in there, or whether it's the rumoured father of the Shantak birds, but something there is broadcasting dreams. So, does that mean if you're a dreamer within the dreamlands on a dream quest, you have dreams while you're there? And you mentioned Inception earlier, Matt. I mean, how, how recursive can this get? Mm. You just eventually find someone laying down saying they're waiting for a train. <laughs> and you've also got the idea, the same idea with Cthulhu. Great Cthulhu sends out dreams mm. to people, not in the dreamlands, but, well, maybe, you know, but uh, in, in uh, Call of Cthulhu, the story. You know, I'm just thinking if... If this Shantak bird is sending out dreams, if it's anything like my birds, it's probably just going to be, bring me seed, bring me more seed, feed me, feed me, feed me. They're going to be really different to interpret the dreams of something that's almost an animal mm. rather than a human. They're yeah. going to be really bloody weird for a human mind to try and grasp. Yeah, I can't imagine it's a pleasant experience. Carter's walking tour of Ingrenok ends at an inn frequented by quarrymen. The miners tell him little of the desert to the north, however, as they fear evil presences and nameless sentinels among the scattered rocks, not to mention the unwholesome Shantak birds rumoured to dwell there. Yeah, man, we get a lot of shadowing about these Shantak <laughs> birds. They better not just be rumours. <laughs> if we don't meet one soon, you know. I also like how after all this walking, it's effectively Lovecraft just trying to... Uh, obfuscate Carter going on this pub crawl across the city that he's just going from <laughs> one end to another. But this is also another example of Lovecraft's almost reflexive use of the same adjective over and over again, that at least the first several times we hear mention of the Shantaks, they're always the rumoured Shantaks. Hmm. I wonder, again, whether this is the kind of thing a second draft would have fixed, but... He does this an awful lot in his other stories. He just yeah. he mm. finds an adjective that he believes belongs on a word, and the two of them just get married. And every time you see them, they're they're together, like a gibbous moon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you mentioned several times about there being a second draft. I mean, it's not like Lovecraft is well known for taking out adjectives or making no. things easier to understand. So I don't no, think it was, I think a second draft might have been even more stuff. You know. I think you're probably right. He realised he was getting paid by the word and then went, right, let's break out the thesaurus. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, oh God, he's at it again. Carter hires a yak and heads north. <laughs> Place your bets now of the life expectancy of this poor animal. <laughs> oh. The people he encounters on the way are so full of an unplaced majesty, like to that in the huge features of Ingranek, that he feels certain he has come at last upon one of the great ones themselves. After a few days of travelling through mining camps and up into the mountains, Carter comes to a monstrous space, vast acres in extent, where some archaic power has riven and rent the native cliffs of Onyx in the form of a giant's quarry. 
This sight seems to panic his yak, which flees in terror, and Carter chases after it, speeding up as he realises the hoofbeats he can hear aren't coming from his yak, but are actually coming from behind him. As night falls, Carter finds it harder to spot the yak's footprints and fancies himself surrounded by titanic flappings and whirrings. Only the titanic peaks in the distance give any sense of direction. Yeah, and it's around here that we do get this reference to uh, only a very expert dreamer could have used those imperceptible footholds, yet to Carter they were sufficient. So it's very much like you can use your dreaming skill to do all manner of things, and the better you are at dreaming, the more able you are to do even physical skills and feats, such as climbing, that this dreaming skill makes you better at that as well. Mm. Perhaps it you know, increases your perception, you're able to see the world more clearly, you're able to feel it more clearly, sense it more clearly, and manipulate it more effectively. It's a strange thing that he's kind of built that in because it doesn't feel like that needs to be there, that, that thing about the dreaming, being an expert dreamer. Also, this whole thing of going into the mountains and seeing like the far side and various faces on the mountains very much brings to mind Mount at the Mountains of Madness, Lovecraft's yeah. earlier story uh, that we read. And not coincidentally, you know, those mountains in Antarctica are also linked with Ling. Right. And we see the idea of mountains and mythology uh, seem to be quite strongly linked. You know, we see it in Greek mythology with the Mount Olympus, um, with you know, Mount Sinai, with uh, Charlton Heston going up to get the Ten Commandments. So it's, it's very much this idea of, you know, I don't know where this comes from, uh, mythology, I guess, but you know, this idea of the gods residing or being somehow revealed in the mountains, maybe because the mountains are a hard place to get to and, you know, a kind of a spiritual quest is supposed to be a hard thing. Yeah, I mean, it could be something as simple as the fact that we associate the skies with the gods because a lot of our early myths came out of trying to make sense of extreme weather conditions and so we ended up with storm gods and the like. Mm. And so, you know, we think of the gods as being up above us. So, of course, that must mean that they live in high places like mountains. It's like the mountains almost form like a stairway to heaven. Mm. Not biting. <laughs> <laughs> Then, dim and misty in the darkling north, before him he glimpsed a terrible thing. He had thought it for some moments a range of black mountains, but now he saw it was something more. The phosphorescence of the brooding clouds showed it plainly, and even silhouetted parts of it as low vapours glowed behind. It was thousands of feet high, stretching in a great concave arc from the grey impassable peaks to the unimagined westward spaces, and had once indeed been a ridge of mighty onyx hills. But now those hills were hills no more, for some hand greater than man's had touched them. Silent they squatted there atop the world like wolves or ghouls, crowned with clouds and mists and guarding the secrets of the north forever. All in a great half-circle they squatted, those dog-like mountains carven into monstrous watching statues, and their right hands were raised in menace against mankind. That is quite literally awesome. He paints a picture. Mm. Great winged shapes rise from these peaks and fly towards Carter. 
They were not any birds or bats known elsewhere on earth or in dreamland, for they were larger than elephants and had heads like a horse's. Carter recognizes them as Shantaks, sent to guard this realm. They're not rumors. Woohoo! <laughs> they weren't a giant cocktees after all. They are there. Yay. Yep. Dumbo's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Except Dumbo has a head like a horse. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That just makes them somewhat less sinister. I mean, it's like the kangaroo legs on the ghast. I mean, you're imagining these great, scaly, hideous, winged things, large than elephants, and they've got horses' heads. <laughs> Let's leave Carter there then as the Shantaks approach. Join us next time to find out how that plays out. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. Thank you for listening. And it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon. And we have a number of new backers to thank by name. Starting off with Greg Yeager. Thanks, Greg. And also thank you very much to David Munoz. And thank you very much to Jörg Buch. And thanks to Nicholas Jovanovic. Ah, now here's a name I recognise. In fact, uh, you may remember him from other episodes, such as the interview with Scott. Very much thanks to Adrian Tchaikovsky. Yeah, thank you, Adrian. And thank you very much to Kim Malika. And thanks to Derek Robertson. And also thank you very much to David Stefanov. And of course, we have almost certainly mangled some of your names there. If we have, please do let us know and we'll unmangle them in a subsequent episode. If you have enjoyed this episode, or the good friends of Jackson Elias in general, please do let other people know about it, whether this means leaving a review wherever you get your podcast from, making a post on social media, or broadcasting your dreams from some sinister dome somewhere. Whatever it is, we would be extremely grateful. Particularly grateful if it's one of the former options, though. <laughs> Don't diss the dome, Paul. That dome is effective. Yeah, well, you know... Uh... I was thinking leaflet dropped by Shantak also sounded quite a good option, but mm. oh well. All right, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias, and until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com They are also very sorry that cat shung. That they are also very sorry that cats shung shun 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 ingenog is not an easy thing to say. Why did I write it like that?